Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 17. Hello again, I'm Ryan Gray, your host, back with you for another session of the Medical School HQ Podcast, the podcast about medical school, where we take you through the pre-med process, medical school, and even through residency. We hope to take your knowledge of becoming a physician to the next level. Today I have an awesome interview. I know I say that every week, I'm kind of like Conan O'Brien. But I really do this week. I have Chris Manuel. He has been an instructor with the Princeton Review since 2002. Yeah, 11 years he's been teaching at the Princeton Review. He not only teaches at the Princeton Review, but he teaches the teachers. And before you turn this off because you're taking Kaplan and you don't want to know about the Princeton Review, this is not just a podcast about Princeton Review. This is a podcast about the mindset of taking the MCAT. And we do talk a little bit about some of the options that the Princeton Review offers, uh, the types of classes they have. But trust me, even if you know you're not taking the Princeton Review, listen to this podcast. Chris has some awesome uh, psychology stuff to talk about, about taking the MCAT ways to prepare for the MCAT, again, regardless of taking Princeton Review. But if you are taking the Princeton Review, they've reached out and they're offering listeners of the Medical School HQ podcast $250 off the Princeton Review's MCAT Ultimate Classroom or Live Online course if you enroll between March 20th and May 2nd, 2013. To receive this discount, go to PrincetonReview.com and use the promo code MedSchoolHQ250. That's MedSchoolHQ250 at checkout. Or you can call the great Anthony who hooked us up with this deal. His number is 888-758-7737, extension 5017. This is something that uh, I asked the Princeton Review to do for the listeners 
above and beyond the normal kind of discounts that you see out there. And so they responded with this awesome deal. Again, if you're going to use Princeton Review, MCAT Ultimate Classroom or Live Online Course, MedSchool HQ250 saves you 250 bucks at checkout. So I want to get to this interview because it's awesome. And I think if you are taking the MCAT in the next uh, several months or next year even, or whenever you're listening, if you're preparing for the MCAT, listen to this interview, soak up everything that Chris has to offer, and your score will go up. I guarantee it. I don't know about guarantee, but you'll do awesome. So I'm going to get to Chris. He starts off talking about his background and how he got to where he is today. So I was born and raised in Beaumont, Texas, which is a small town near Houston. Um, My mom is a pediatrician and my dad is a urologist in Beaumont. I have an older brother. He's nine years older than me. Uh, He went to Vanderbilt for undergraduate and is now a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist here in Austin, Texas. So when it came for me to look into colleges, I was looking at the top tier uh, area of schools and I was considering Texas heavily. Um, I got into the University of Notre Dame, and that's where I ended up going. My brother's best friend went there, and he kind of persuaded me when it came down to that choice. So I went to Notre Dame, and I was a biology major, and I was ready to go to medical school. Um, when I finished up, I really wanted to do a service project because I was younger. I was 21 years old when I graduated. And uh, I applied to a bunch of different programs, and one program that was looked promising, they were going to place me in a school in New Orleans, which did not particularly appeal to me. So at this point, I've taken my GRE. I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I decided to pursue master's degrees. Looked at a bunch of programs, ended up settling uh, to stay in Texas. And so I went to the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, where I did a master's in biostatistics and epidemiology. Uh, after completing that program, I was once again ready to go to medical school. And the school kind of offered me a pretty good deal, uh, where I ended up actually teaching biostats one. So here I am at 23 years old, and I'm teaching biostats to the med students at this particular school, as well as a graduate program. In addition to doing that, they put me in their post back. So now I'm taking classes with the med students. It was a little awkward, because you're taking classes with some of the people you teach, but it was a very enjoyable experience. So once I'm done with that, I'm ready to go to med school again, and my friend with this internet company persuades me to come join. And after lots of back and forth, I signed on on May 1st, 2005. Now, I joined Princeton Review in November of 2002. Uh, so basically, after I graduated, I started teaching. And I became a trainer in 04 for GCHEM and in 05 for OCHEM. And I pretty much only teach those two areas. So I'm into my 11th year in November of this year. Uh, and I've taught thousands upon thousands of classes. I've trained approximately 350 new teachers to teach for the company. And I helped rewrite some of our materials, specifically the general chemistry books, as well as our med school admissions. Uh, So the information that I kind of gathered for my med school presentation is just from different people I've worked with over the years. And being at Princeton Review, we've got a lot of people that work for us that are actually on faculty at medical schools. and, And I essentially held that position as well. So I realized that there was a huge deficiency in terms of pre-med education. Most pre-meds will tell you they don't trust their pre-med advisor. They don't feel comfortable going to them. And some of the information they're presented is not entirely accurate. So I kind of created my own presentation that I give out to different kids uh, and different clubs uh, and as well as my classes to really describe the process of getting into medical school. 
So I keep teaching. Uh, I think I've got a couple years left in me. Once the MCAT changes, I think that's about when I'll end up uh, retiring. But I really do enjoy it. I love getting in front of the classroom. Um, I really focus just on GCAM and OCAM. I've created a couple of really special programs for Princeton Review. Uh, one of them, which uh, was called Ultimate MCAT up until this year, we've rebranded it called Summer Intensive. It's a special program we run in Austin, Texas. That's 36 days, pretty much just pure MCAT. Um, you go all day, every day, and you're guaranteed the best instructors in the country. Uh, and the program has been ex- immensely successful, and we're in our seventh year of doing that program. So that's really what I focus my teaching attention on is that program. Um, and that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Uh, so I'm a big nerd and guy. I love, love going back to games. was there at the national championship. It was a little sad for me, but I was excited to have been there, uh, finally making, it, making some headway. Um, and then I do teach these classes, like I said. So in the Austin office, I try to touch as many of our sections as we can. And I do reviews and things like that and work with our younger teachers to kind of mold them. Okay. So pretty, uh, pretty thorough back history there and kind of gives us an idea of who you are and, and kind of your credentials in, in your teaching. Describe... Uh, I'm assuming where you teach is the normal, like, in-person classroom setting. Correct. I don't teach the online classes at this time. I okay. only do the uh, live one-on-one class or live live classes. Okay. Describe describe one of the live classes for somebody that that's looking into MCAT prep right now. Describe what they would go through in one of your classes. Sure. Um, so the big thing about the classroom structure is that you do have individual teachers per subject. And there are a few teachers like myself that teach multiple subjects. Um, the interactions you have with those teachers, it really helps and is different from the online component because you do get the interaction with other students as well. And I always like to say, if a student has a question, I want them to ask that question. Because while other students may not have thought of that question, they definitely benefit from hearing that question. And so what we do in our classroom program is we actually lecture course, but we also have what's called an ICC, which is an in-class compendium, where we'll go over particular MCAT topics that we've just covered in class. So now you can see how your MCAT instructor thinks. And our program is unique in that it's the most number of hours. So you're going to get 42 classes at two and a half hours each, which is almost double some of the uh, other competitors that are out there in the market. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I, I know you can't, probably speak specifics with some of the the competitors but when i when i did my mcap prep i took kaplan and they had their offices right on the campus so i think it was convenient for me but and this was a while ago i don't remember having separate teachers for all the subjects is that something that's unique to princeton review um, it is. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that you took Kaplan because guess who I took? Uh, I also took Kaplan <laughs> um, because at Notre Dame, we did not have Princeton Review. I mean, I've been actually working really hard to try and get us there. So typically, Kaplan will have one instructor teaching all five subjects. Now, certain offices, you can definitely see that skew where you may have multiple teachers, but I've never heard of anyone having more than, say, three instructors. Now, I always tell people, when I came back to Texas, I could have looked and I looked at and could have taught for any program I wanted to. And my MCAT score is 99.9 percentile. And so when I interviewed with Kaplan, they would have had me teaching physics and as well as verbal. And I, I kind of looked at it and said, you know, I don't know physics very well. Yes, I did really well on my MCAT, but that was a product of studying. I don't really understand it. And 
when I wanted to see who I want to teach for, that was the biggest selling point for why I wanted to work for Princeton Review is that I really wanted to focus in and specialize on particular topics. Okay. So you just mentioned something, and, and I, maybe you can clarify it a little bit. You mentioned physics. You don't really understand it, but you were able to kind of study it and do very well in it. And that's kind of the the theory behind the MCAT or the thoughts behind the MCAT is it really doesn't test your knowledge of the subject. It tests how well you can take the test. It- um, I, I agree with that to a certain extent. Um, there are definitely some topics that uh, you do need to know more in depth. And so I'm really big on test-taking skills. I mean, there are certain questions on the MCAT that I already know what the answer is before I even read the question, just based off the answer choices. So what I, the way my kind of teaching philosophy is, it's a balancing act between content and test-taking skills. The material that I'm going to review, it doesn't go past Physics 1, Physics 2, GCHEM 1, GCHEM 2, so on and so forth. So the material itself is not hard. It's the way that I ask questions that makes it difficult. And the typical pre-med, they want to read, memorize, regurgitate, purge, repeat. And they just keep doing that. So they don't actually understand what's being asked. And what the MCAT is very good at is if you don't understand a particular topic, they can ask questions that require you to either make an educated guess, right, gather information from the passage, or it's straight up, hey, I'm a good test taker. I can eliminate answer choices. And that's what I am. I'm very good at eliminating answer choices. And the reason I was able to do so well is my physics knowledge, while lacking, I was able to apply my test-taking skills. And back when I took the MCAT, which has been many, many years, it was actually the paper and pencil test, I'm pretty confident that I missed six questions on my MCAT in its entirety, and five of those were physics questions. And once again, I don't know absolutely, but that's what I think occurred. So my physics knowledge is very, very weak uh, in terms of understanding because I did what the typical pre-med does. Is I memorized a bunch of material, but I was able to apply it because of my test-taking skills. Okay. So... So you did really bad, missed, you think, six questions overall. I think that's what I did, that's, yeah. I that's six. terrible. And, and <laughs> back, back in the old paper and pencil days, which I also took, you, one of those might have been a missed bubble. It could have been. You never know, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I think that's right. Uh, so I missed one verbal question, and uh, I, think that's, I think I missed those five physical. Once again, way back in the day, we're kind of like dinosaurs nowadays talking to pre-meds. Yeah. So... <laughs> That's an incredible score, and uh, I'm glad you, you hit upon the, the test-taking skills because it's, it's important. But let's talk about instructors for a minute. You obviously did very well on the MCAT, and any of the test prep companies would jump at having you as an instructor because of your score. That doesn't mean that you'd be a good instructor for the next round of students coming through to take the test and to prepare for the test. And in my situation, back when I took Kaplan, that was the situation that I was in. I had one teacher, I think he got a 42 on the test, on the MCAT, and he was a terrible teacher. And so I I, I kind of struggled on my own using the resources that were available but not able to use the teacher because he would flip through the subjects and the material and go, oh, you should know this, you should know this. <laughs> like That's why I'm taking the class, dude, so I can learn. Um, but tell me, you've said you've, you've taught a bunch of teachers over your years with 
the Princeton Review. How how does the Princeton Review pick their teachers? Well, uh, it's a good, good, very good question, a very important question. So it really, let's start at the ground level. So I taught a, a bunch of students over the Christmas break, about 130 kids. We'd split into four groups, and I taught every single one of them. So as a very senior instructor, I can see and kind of with the interactions in class, figure out who's going to be a good teacher. So in that scenario, I say, okay, here are the 10 kids I think are going to be good teachers. They have to come in and do an interview. And this is a non-academic interview. Um, we always ask, present on something that you enjoy that's non-academic. So I remember when I did mine, it was on how to throw a tailgate. So we measure and kind of guide and see how well is a student going to perform in front of the classroom just from a personality standpoint. Then they have to take a subject-specific content test. And they have to score a certain percentile on this exam, which is a pretty tough exam. After that, you're now invited to go to training. And this is really where I do most of my work for Princeton Review, is I travel around the country doing these trainings. And that training is tough. It's about 20 hours in one weekend where that in particular trainee, and usually we have anywhere between three to five trainees, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, they have to go through and present live classroom material. And as a trainer, my job is to critique them and provide feedback. And now I'm putting my stamp of approval on that particular person. Um, so I've run the most number of trainings pretty much of any instructor in the country at about 140 of these. So it's definitely word of mouth that gets around too as to who's an effective trainer. Uh, so you as a trainer now are that content guru slash teaching style expert for that particular trainee and you follow up with them throughout the process. When I looked at Kaplan and going to teach for them, it was a lot less training, and all of a sudden, I'm certified in all five subjects. So if you want to teach multiple subjects for us, you have to do multiple training sessions, and we help weed out quite a few teachers um, through that process. Uh, in fact, I get a lot of PhDs that want to train and teach for us, and very few PhDs actually make it through my trainings. And the reason for that is they teach like a college class, right? They don't actually go and under, make you understand the material. They just put it all on the board and expect you to memorize it, and you're supposed to know it going forward. So the interactive methodology that we use, which we call the Socratic method, really helps us, one, create great teachers, and two, create that great teacher-student relationship where the student feels comfortable in class and can ask any questions that they want to. That sounds awesome. I wish I knew all that uh, back when I <laughs> took my MCAT prep course. Yeah, back in the day, right? Yeah. Uh, it was different, and I didn't know any better either when I took mine. It was like Kaplan's the only cl- class on campus, and here we go. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, uh, that's that's my job here is to inform everybody moving forward what the options are and what the differences are. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the different programs or different ways that students can use Princeton Review. You mentioned a couple with your uh, the uh, intensive program, or what, what did you call it? Uh, we're calling it the summer intensive. Summer, the, the M- summer MCAT intensive. intensive. Yeah. You mentioned it's in Texas, isn't it? It's in San Diego as well, isn't it? Correct. So, um, and actually, let me rephrase myself. I think we're actually tagging this MCAT Summer Immersion. Okay. Um, They've just changed his name, and I didn't know about that. So, um, yes, you're right. So it started in Austin. Uh, we ran it in Austin first, and then uh, it was extremely successful, and we started uh, in other offices as well. And right now, for the last couple of years, it's only been San Diego and the Austin office. Uh, so San Diego really caters to those students who start classes a little earlier in the fall, um, and then we cater to those students who may start in, you know, end of August, early September. Okay. Now, when you say it's extremely successful, how do you gauge that? 
couple of ways. Um, one, I look at my student responses. I do lots of surveys. Uh, so what's the feedback that the students are getting? Um, then I look at score improvements. And it's difficult to document actual score improvements. And the reason for that is I can have a lot of kids actually take my program and then end up not taking the MCAT for some time. Now, is that score that they actually get reflective of the program? It may or may not be. But if you don't have someone taking it right away, it's very difficult to gauge that. Um, I've got a lot of people that are referrals that are coming because their friends have taken it. And we're seeing a lot of siblings as well. So my brother took it three years ago. Now I'm coming back. Um, So overall, the program has been very successful in terms of our numbers of enrollments, uh, as well as the overall feedback we get for the program. Okay. And it's not a cheap program. (laughs) It's definitely not cheap. Um, I'm looking at it right now. So for our program, the tuition is about $8,500. Um, and then you've got to do your room and board as well. Yeah. Uh, and I'll just kind of talk about it. We typically see three types of students um, in this program. The first type are those students uh, who've taken the MCAT multiple times, have not achieved the score that they need to get in. And they kind of view this program as, I've got to get my score up. This is the best program out there. This is it. I'm going to go there. I'm going to do as best I can. And hopefully I get that MCAT score up to a competitive area. The second grouping of students are those students who live in the you know, smaller rural areas, and they maybe don't have the option for a live class, and they'd have to travel for a live class anyway. So now they view our program and say, well, if I'm going to travel anyway, I might as well go to a program that's a top-tier program that's condensed, so I minimize the amount of time that I'm gone from the program. Um, and those students tend to do very well in the program uh, from what I've seen. And then the third grouping are those students whose parents have done the research and have found this program and say, I want you to come here uh, and do this program. And sometimes those students, they're not entirely into the program, and so we kind of got to mold them and get them ready for the MCAT. Um, but it, you know, it, there's definitely a, a unique atmosphere. Um, we do cap our program. So last year, we went a little bu- above, and we now put a cap in at 60 students, which is very different from other super intense programs. Um, so we will guarantee a certain number of students to uh, faculty ratio, basically. Okay. So that's, that's, that's this, the summer immersion program. What if I'm a student, that, like you mentioned, you're at Notre Dame, and you don't have the Princeton Review, but you've talked to your friends and you've read reviews online and you really want to take a Princeton Review course, what are their options? So a couple of options. Uh, the first option is what I wish I did, which was take it in the summer. So when you go back home to whatever city you're from, if there's a class there, there's that option to take that live course. Personally, for me, I wish I had done that because taking it with school was difficult. Um, I had a pretty heavy course load and, you know, you're busy with school. Uh, The second option is we do offer a whole suite of programs that are all completely online. Um, So we call it MCAT Live Online. And I've actually got a couple guys in my office who do a lot of this teaching as well. And we've used some pretty innovative technology to really drive this. Um, so it's, it's a very similar program to our normal MCAT class, uh, but it's just all online. Okay. Do you, get, do you get some one-on-one instructor time with that? Um, you do in a way because we do office hours. And so it's kind of a similar thing. Come in if you have questions. And so you come in and now you can ask those questions. And typically, you definitely get some of that one-on-one time. Okay. In the office hours, I'm, I'm assuming it's like a conference call. Exactly. It's same, through the same setup as the live online classes. Um, just log in and there's your instructor and you can ask them questions. Okay. So the live online, I, I didn't catch that at first. So the live online is actually a live class that's being taught and you're logging in almost like a webinar. Exactly. Okay. So it's not um, 
pre-recorded stuff and you just click on it whenever you have time. Correct. And you can even, um, those sessions are recorded, right? So if you needed to, you can come back to them. And we have different versions of this. So some of them are going to be purely live glass interactions. Some of them will be recorded sessions with uh, extra help where you can come in and log in and get the help you need. Okay, that's good. And I will say I'm not an expert in the live online because that's something I have not particularly uh, touched. Uh, But we've got a lot of people that are doing that for us. Okay. You had mentioned back when you were talking about the summer immersion program, the the three types of students. And one of those types is the, the students that take the test multiple times and just aren't doing well. It's the, the material's not sticking with them. They're not really learning how to take the test. Can, can you talk a little bit about some of the biggest, uh, some of the big mistakes that students make in their prep um, when, when they take the test and they, they come back and are just brokenhearted? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, number one, people underestimate psychology of test taking. And oftentimes, students run up against a hard question, and they don't have that ability to kind of clear their memory and move forward. And so for the rest of the section, they're dwelling on that particular question. We see this very often with people that have studied immensely, immense number of hours and are unable to increase their score. The second thing I would say is students try to memorize everything. I mean, I've seen students go so far as to memorize exact MCAT questions from practice exams. And that's definitely not going to cut it on the test. You know, people do these flashcards, and I'm just such a, an opponent of flashcards because now you're just memorizing, 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 and you're not necessarily understanding the material. So all of a sudden, I rephrase a question or ask it just outside of that scope of memorization, and you can't answer it. And the third thing is these students typically don't reference the passages. They typically just try to do it straight off memorization, especially in verbal, and they don't go back to the passage. When you've got figures in GCAM, OCHEM, physics, bio, you don't reference it. Well, if you have super high content, you can get away with that, but otherwise you really do need to go back through and reference the figures. Okay. For somebody that isn't getting it, what is the first step that you would tell them to do to to get them back on the right path? I think the first thing is there are certain things you have to memorize, right? You've got to know those physics formulas. Um, You've got to know certain structures in organic chemistry. You've got to know certain, um, you know, periodic trends and maybe shape in GCAM. Uh, In bio, there are certain hormones you've got to know. So setting a baseline of memorizing those certain facts, then now you can build upon them. Another thing, too, that people don't do, which I think is huge for MCAT success, is you need to pair up with someone and you need to bounce ideas off of them. And so what I actually have my students do is I tell them, pair up with someone in class and you quiz each other. So I would say, okay, Ryan, tell me about the properties of SN2. And you list them out and I'm working with you on it. If you miss one, I feed you a little bit of information. And then we do a role reversal where now uh, you ask me about properties of SN1. And that's a very effective way to assimilate information and be able to explain it so that you actually truly understand it. Yeah, that's, that's one of the, the big things they say is the best way to learn is to teach. It's very true. Okay. Let's uh, talk for a minute about MCAT 2015, the big change coming up. And, and you'd mentioned a little bit earlier that that's, that may be when you step aside because... 
uh, maybe it's a, a big struggle to learn all that new material, but what is the Princeton Review doing to prepare for the big change in uh, the curriculum? Sure. Um, so I'm a little bit removed from that. Uh, we have a team for MCAT 2015 um, he- headed up by Casey Cornelius, who's a vice president for us. And she's taking this with a bunch of different people who have a lot of MCAT experience. So the first thing is you got to find out exactly what's going to be on the MCAT. And they've released some components of it, but the exact exam structure has not been released in its entirety yet. So we have to go back through. We have to revamp all of our materials to reflect what's going to be asked in the new MCAT. Then we've got to go through and retrain all of our current teachers and our staff on what changes are going to occur. So it's a huge project for us. And we're going to spend lots of time and effort and dollars in developing our program to really meet the needs for the new MCAT. Um, Like I said, I've been removed from this project for the most part, uh, just because uh, where I'm at in my career at the company. But I've got several people that I know personally that are doing this project and have been very impressed with the work that we're putting in towards the uh, conversion, essentially, as well as uh, the changes that we're making just in general philosophy and materials and things like that. Okay. With a, a best guess, uh, do you know if the the types of questions are going to change in in, in respect to the way they ask them? Or is it really going to be just straight up material adding the psychology and and some of the other stuff? I think the style of questions is going to stay the same where um, it is that critical thinking and reasoning test. Um, And Ryan, I'm not sure how much do you know about the history of the MCAT? I think this can explain a lot. Like, do you you know all the ins and outs from way back in the day? Uh, I know some, but you probably know a lot more than I do. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and share it with you. I think this will explain a lot. Okay. Previous to 1991, uh, the MCAT was actually a test of memorization. You got a calculator. You got, uh, I think it was like, I think it was 12 hours how long the exam was in a split over a couple days. Don't quote me on that. I that, that's what I recall from hearing these stories. But it was definitely a test of memorization. And so what you found were students from foreign countries were actually beating U.S. educated students. So students from India, China, Pakistan, Russia, Brazil, wherever, who tend to memorize at a higher level were doing better. And the federal government wasn't very happy with this because for every graduate a medical school produces, they get a pretty substantial sum in federal funding. And I think it's roughly $74,000 right now. So they want to make sure that when someone comes into med school, they finish because there's a lot of dollars tied to it. And what was occurring previous to 1991, actually really like in the 80s, these students from foreign countries are getting into U.S. med schools, going through education, then leaving and going back to their countries. And we had a doctor shortage. So federal government comes down on AMC and says, hey, look, you got to do something about this. You've got to make the MCAT be an exam where our U.S. educated students are poised for success. And that's when the MCAT changed. And it changed this test of critical thinking where if you actually look at the statistics, students who are not uh, English as a first language will score about four to five points below English-speaking uh, first language students. Uh, and they actually quit releasing this data. The last sheet I have is from 05. And I think the point discrepancy is about three and a half points. So things are going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, the MCAT says, our federal government says, okay, we need to make a change again. And MCAT supporting schools are saying, yes, we want a higher correlation with step one because that's the exam that's going to decide your residency. 
So for medical school, GPA by far is the most important component of your application because it's going to test your academic abilities. Can you handle the rigors of med school? Well, GPA is the best indicator of that. Well, they wanted a better indicator of step one. So the MCAT changed from this paper and pencil model to now a computer-based test, which gives them a higher correlation to step one. So you look at the two factors, and now I can decide who's going to be um, the best med- medical student. And from what I've been hearing, the, one of the big changes and reasons for this push to the newest MCAT version in 2015, a couple reasons. Number one, there's a big score discrepancy between men and women, and they don't only really publicize this. Um, But it's about two and a half points that men score higher on the MCAT than women. And that discrepancy is actually there on any multiple choice time test. But the MCAT, much more so than the GMAT or LSAT or GRE, is time critical. Meaning there are students who are not going to finish the exam. And really, the verbal section is meant to be that, I don't know, half of students don't even finish the section. So we're seeing this big push to get rid of that discrepancy, and we want a higher correlation between uh, the MCAT step one and your academic performance. Because med schools are terrified that a student gets in, doesn't complete their courses, and drops out. There's very, very low attrition in medical schools. Uh, And they'll do whatever it takes to get you to finish your schooling. Uh, If that means five years for you, that means five years for you. Uh, One of my college roommates actually took seven years from medical school. uh, Didn't really want to finish, and the school put a lot of pressure on him to finish. And he's not using his medical degree anymore uh, since he graduated. So I think understanding the history of the MCAT is really important to kind of understand where they're going with this. Um, And people think when I apply to med school, it's all about my personal statement, my extracurriculars. But the truth is, med schools don't really care about that. What they care about are the numbers, your GPA and your MCAT, and will you make it through medical school? Now, once I've got those numbers, now it'll start to matter. Well, what did you do for undergrad? Where did you go? What was your major? What were your extracurriculars? And I think students these days are so hung up on just MCAT that they actually fail to realize how important GPA is. Um, for example, if I got a 4.0 and I score 28 on my MCAT, that's a solid candidate for medical school. Most students will tell you, oh my gosh, I got a 28. That's so bad. I got to retake the MCAT. So when a student says, hey, I got this score, what should I do? My first question is, well, what's your GPA? So I think this change is really going to be beneficial. And it's really going to help medical schools find the best candidates who are in it for the right reasons, hopefully. And that's part of the psychology component. And, and also that they're going to do well in medical school in that environment. Okay. Great answer. I, I appreciate the, the back history there. Yeah, I wouldn't mind people know this stuff uh, because, I mean, who's been around since then, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, who's been teaching that stuff since then? Yeah, oh, wait, you. I, I actually had a buddy, one of my trainers uh, taught me a lot of this stuff about the MCAT. And my brother, being nine years older than me, he graduated high school in 89. Um, so he actually had friends who were a little bit older than him that would tell me these things. So I kind of gathered this knowledge from a bunch of really random sources over the years. Okay, that's great. Um, if you could give a must-have tip for the pre-med out there. Maybe it's not just for the MCAT, uh, but for for the freshman on campus that wants to get started on that right path, what would you tell them? Uh, very funny you mentioned that, Ryan. So my, my mother, I love her to death. She loves to give my cell phone number out to every kid from our hometown that we know uh, that's going to be pre-med. So Chris will get you into med school. And so what I do with these kids, I really sit them down in the freshman year. I'm like, okay, you want to be a doctor? Here we go. Let's start. First thing, do not be a science major unless you truly love science. So for me, I should have been a business major. And then I should have been pre-med on top of that. That's the biggest piece of advice I can give anyone 
Because if you major in something you truly love, your GPA is going to be higher. And if for some reason medical school does not work out, you can now fall back on something you truly love. I see this often where kids are biology majors and they don't really love biology and they're doing it because they want to be pre-med. And now they don't get into med school. Well, what are your plans at that point? They're, they're, your options are very limited. The second thing is I would volunteer somewhere consistently throughout my academic career. So there's actually a soup kitchen here in Austin that I have these kids go volunteer. I'm talking one Friday a month, but do it the entire duration of your academic career. Then I would get a job in the medical field. I wouldn't go volunteer at the hospital because let's face it, you don't do anything when you do that. But I would get a job where I'm actually going to be working typically a graveyard type shift in the summertime. And I'll be doing stuff I don't want to do. I'll be shaving patients before surgery. But the experience and the interactions I get are substantially more than just volunteering at a hospital. The third thing that I would do, um, and this is a very common mistake that I see with students, is when you're writing your personal statement, think of your personal statement as a, and it's kind of more specific, but think of it as a touching off point for what you want to discuss during your interview. So if I'm interviewing 15 kids in a given week, I don't see their academic records in most schools. Instead, I'm going to read your personal statement about 15 minutes before you come in for your interview. So think of that personal statement as what you want to discuss, and you can tie it in now to that volunteering experience that I talked about, as well as your medical experience. So for the pre-med coming in, I think the biggest piece of advice, single most important thing is I would not be a science major unless that's truly what I'm interested in, where I could see myself working in that field uh, in the business side of things or as an engineer. See, folks, I told you it wasn't going to be all about the Princeton Review. It was awesome content from Chris. He kind of gave us a little bit of everything, some Princeton Review stuff, some basic test prep, test mentality information, some great pre-med advice, and I think anybody can take away a little bit of information from what Chris had to say today. Again, if you listen to the beginning of the podcast, the Princeton Review is giving Medical School HQ listeners $250 off of their MCAT Ultimate Classroom or Live Online course if you enroll between March 20th and May 2nd of 2013. If you're listening to this in the future, I am sorry. Maybe we'll have a new deal when you're listening. But for now, March 20th through May 2nd, 2013, go to princetonreview.com. Order either the MCAT Ultimate Classroom or Live Online course and use MedSchool HQ250 as the promo code at checkout. Or you can call Anthony. He's uh, our friend over at the Princeton Review that hooked us up with this deal. His number is 888-758-7737, extension 5017. Everything that we talked about in today's session, you can find the links for and information, more information in the show notes at medicalschoolhq.net slash session 17. Again, medicalschoolhq.net slash session 17. I hope you got some valuable information that will help better guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Make sure to join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. 